I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is, uh, I think, meant for a very interesting conversation. Uh, we are we're hanging out with our new friend Owen, um, and I feel like there's I feel like there's like maybe some like stories to get out of the way here. But uh, prior to setting up this recording, I came to know of Owen uh, and his work through uh, a colleague um, and and uh, employee of Owen's. Um, her name was Chelsea. We spoke to her on Turn Me On. Fascinating conversation. Um, and Owen is the founder of, um, of Fermata, which is a, from what I gather, a mental health clinic in New York. Um, and Owen has a really impressive resume as a psychiatrist, but also happens to be like a, a sound engineer by training. Like Owen, Owen, you, you're, <laughs> you're, you give me, you give me these vibes of like the, what, uh, what the fuck can't you do? Like it's kind of that you're you're one of those guys where it's like, oh man, Owen's just good at everything. So uh, I, I'm I, I'm Dr. Owen Scott Muir, MD. I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist by training. Uh, my mother it calls me Dr. Muir. She's very proud. Uh, Owen to everybody else is fine. Um, and I'm not. I'm actually really bad at a lot of things. Uh, I'm 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 broadly incapable. Uh, and that has been one of the most remarkable gifts to me as a human, because coping with my own inabilities um, led to novel solutions to problems in my life and hopefully the lives of others. Mm-hmm. How did you? Okay, so just just for the just for like a little bit of clarification, just because I'm curious. Yeah. Um, how does one go down the road of becoming like quite a, a you know quite a um, rec- well recognized psychiatrist, but also having a background in sound engineering? So, uh, well, you know what you do is you start out thinking you're going to be a sound engineer, and and you're really, really wrong about that. So I grew I grew up in in, in uh, Northwest Connecticut, and my mom runs an arts not for profit uh, called the Litchfield uh, Jazz Festival, Litchfield Performing Arts. I grew up like from from the year one. My mom was kicking me out of my my bedroom as a kid so that the Shanghai String Quartet could sleep somewhere. And we started out having like concerts in, in my home. Um, and so my mom was like, you know, DIY indie show, except for unbelievable classical music and eventually jazz. Mm, cool, um, cool. So I, I loved music. I always loved music. It was it was my delight. And I, I went to Amherst College um, as my undergraduate institution, uh, which was great. But my intent was to say, fuck it to all of it. Uh, if I can swear on the show, that's good. And if I can't, oops. Absolutely um, fucking can. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it, I went to the Taft School in Watertown, Connecticut. And at the Taft School, we happened to have a uh, 
a, a, a stu recording studio um, that was donated by one of the Doobie Brothers, who was an alum. Uh, <laughs> with like, so I'm the last person on earth, you know, generation wise, who trained on four track and eight track tape. Um, and I just fell completely in love with recording, and I spent every waking moment. Uh, that I possibly could in the recording studio of that school. My cousin turns out to be a mastering engineer originally at Sony Music Studios, now uh, Chris Athens Masters, um, Sterling Sound, etc. He does like a third of Billboard Top 100 at any given time. Um, and I he gave me a four-track. And I was, I was totally daft. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? Um, I went to Amherst uh, College because I had to go to some college and it had no requirements. Um, and that was really appealing because I have horrible dyslexia and mm -hmm. I was in special ed in kindergarten. Like I got held back in kindergarten. Uh, and then I, I repeated it and then I did first grade and I was a sped for years, um, mm -hmm. which is what we used to call kids who are in special education. Um, I had a tutor for five years because of my horrible, horrible dyslexia. I, I was in special Latin. That's literally what they called it. I had a language requirement in, in high school. And they called it special Latin. So I was a pretty impaired person mm -hmm. in a lot of regards. I, I, I was a miserable failure with languages. I literally chose colleges based on not having to do a language. Mm -hmm. um, and that approach of like a, a strategic avoidance turns out to be a great way to learn stuff you weren't planning on learning. Uh, <laughs> and that's really helpful. Mm. Um, and so like my impairments very much shaped my, my, my outlook because I had to do things differently. Um, and the other important impairment I have is I have bipolar disorder. And mm. so although I'm a smart enough guy, I went to college and there's just no way I was going to go to medical school because I could get depressed and, and then I couldn't do it. It was in my mind. And so I'm going to take no pre-med requirements. In fact, I'm only going to, you know, basically spend all my time at the local recording studio down the street, which was the slaughterhouse in Amherst, Massachusetts. <laughs> um, that's how I spent college, was doing that and doing every upper-level neuroscience seminar, but none of the prerequisites for medical school. So I could cool. prevent myself from going, which failed miserably, by the way. Um, I'm actually a miracle of science. This is a fun fact. Um, my dad had a reversed vasectomy after 12 years, and he was the first person to ever have that happen. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. No like, like, he, like he was the first person to get a, a vasectomy. Successfully reversed, reversed vasectomy. Yeah. Wow. wow. That's Crazy. wild. That's cool. Yep. Um, and uh, here I am many years later as a psychiatrist trained in child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry. I'm dual board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Did my medical school at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Uh, Northwell Hofstra. The, the full name of my general psychiatry residency program is, and this is not a joke, the Barbara and David, Barbara and Donald Sucker Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine General Psychiatry Residency Program at the Zucker Hillside Hospital. <laughs> that's what you get when you get when that's what you get when everybody is like, I'm only donating if you put my name on it. But they put their name on it twice. <laughs> they put their name on the med school and on the hospital. Oh my so God. it's it's the worst name. Then I did child psychiatry training at the NYU Bellevue uh, uh, Child Psychiatry Fellowship Program. Mm. Um, and I founded a bunch of stuff. One of them is called uh, Fermata. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I probably you want to talk to me because I do uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation treatment fast, uh, accelerated. I also am the author of Adolescent Suicide and Self-Injury, Colon Mentalizing Theory and Treatment, which is a remarkable approach to the psychotherapy of people who want to die. Mm 
um, out of the Anna Freud Center. I'm an official supervisor with that uh, and blah, blah, blah. I write stuff. I re record stuff. I was an engineer in the day. I do a bunch of stuff. I, you know, I'm an interested person. Well, and, yeah, and an interesting person. And, yeah. and I, I mean, go ahead. I want to I want to get I really want to get to the Fermata thing uh, because the write up of Fermata on, on the website is actually like it's really fascinating. It, it was something that like immediately yeah. kind of struck me. But but go ahead before I get into that. Well, I mean, it seems like all of most of, if not all of your work is is surrounded and surrounded um, is focused in children or adolescents. No, um, mm -hmm. no, 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 not at all. What, 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 uh, but it seems like a good a good chunk of it a good chunk of it is is right and then so, where does that come from like so where there's a the reason for that? that there's a reason for that um so one of the things that's not obvious uh about uh psychiatry as a medical discipline is that we we are inappropriately trained and what i mean by that is if you don't know what happens to kids you don't understand adults well mm -hmm. uh and so general psychiatry residency training uh, for doctors who do four years of medical school before you get to any of this, right? Every doctor of any any MD kind or DO, they do four years of surgery, internal medicine, pediatrics, et cetera. But that whole time is learning stuff and, and working and all that, but you're not, you don't have responsibility mm -hmm. for anything yet. But it's thousands of hours of learning from people. And, and then you get to residency. And again, the, the, the responsibility is not yours. You are, uh, um, you know, you're responsible in moments. Observing mm -hmm. and... No, no, it's it's actually, so there's another 30,000 hours of supervised practice before you get to be a psychiatrist. And before you get to be a child psychiatrist, you end up doing another 20,000 hours after that. Um, so in the, in the course of training to be a physician, you do four years of just constant learning work training under supervision then you do about 30 to forty-five thousand hours more uh, it's 45 to 50 for me and then you get to practice and then it's on your head Ooh. now if you compare that to like nurse practitioners they have 800 hours of shadowing necessary before they can theoretically do the same thing that i do which isn't to denigrate them it's just a different training to learn different things mm -hmm. and i think we wildly under under appreciate registered nursing uh, and and what therapists do and the training they have. But the training for doctors is actually very <laughs> weird. We're trained to recognize exceptions mm. and to know what to do when the protocol doesn't work, which is mm. not the most useful skill most of the time, just some of the time is crucial. Mm. And so the way we practice psychiatry is solo, and the way we practice the rest of medicine is a team, and that's crazy. Mm. How did, like, knowing that, how did that... I mean, before you get into into like what Fermata does and specializes yep. in, but how did you know? Did you think about that when you decided to um decided to open up your own clinic and and like you know how, in what ways did did yep. your education kind of kind of guide you towards how you wanted to work as a team with the people that you're bringing yep. in to like work with you and the focuses that you were kind of putting at the forefront of your clinic? Yeah, and see, you met Chelsea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, Chelsea's a genius. Mm -hmm. And uh, my favorite way of employing anybody is <laughs> going to work for them first. <laughs> so Chelsea brought me on to help her produce her podcast. Mm. And I ended up being a co-host of Orthogonal with Chelsea Vizzano. Uh, and I was the comic relief, essentially. Mm. Um, but she's totally brilliant. Uh, and she's, uh, you know, a great science mind. Uh, and, and, and great writer. Um, and so we started working together with me 
helping her as a as a you know her lackey, and then she came to work with me as my lackey. But really, it, this is teamwork. And mm-hmm. I think one of the best ways to employ anybody is to find people who are remarkably talented and relatively speaking underappreciated by others. Mm-hmm. How, how do you um, um how do, how do you when, when you when you said the, the 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 thing about psychiatry being the solo thing and then like all other yeah. aspects of medicine being a teamwork and you know when you say that I go oh yeah I mean at least how it is how psychiatry and psychology are portrayed to me and probably because of the nature of you know people divulging you know, like very intimate, uh, very intimate things that need to be um, kind of like observed and understood and delved into it, it in, in a lot of ways, like, and maybe again, maybe it's because it's just that way that it's portrayed to me. Like it's supposed to be this one-on-one solo professional experience. Can you tell me how, I'm assuming you think that that is wrong in some, in some ways, how how is it how is it wrong and how can you create that experience as like a team as a team based uh thing yeah so i've, I've done it a couple times <laughs> so i can answer the question um but but first i think like i want you to just take the opportunity to ask an md any question you want about what i actually think about whatever in mental health that you actually have actual questions about and i'll answer them honestly Ooh. And then I'll frame the conversation in a way that's much more helpful than starting there, is my guess. Mm. I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, so as somebody who also has ADHD, um, I t- like, you know, when you describe your interests and the things that you've worked on, I totally get it. You know, I, like I'm interested in a bunch of different things and love, love exploring those things. Um, but I also find that that interest for me personally can be um, one of the things that also brings the most amount of stress to my life. And so I'm curious from an MD perspective and from a person who uh, lives with ADHD, how do you manage or observe the stressors in your life or the stress that ADHD causes in terms of like pursuing all of these interests to like the nth degree? Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, sorry, that was uh, I was getting a call from my colleague who's the chief medical officer of another massive health company. Uh, <laughs> So ADHD is interesting, right? Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, um, originally described as minimal brain dysfunction um, at Bradley Hospital in the 1920s, um, but clearly been around for a long time. Whatever that is, has a population prevalence of 10%, right? And so there's nothing in, in genetics that explains a prevalence of 10% of the population that harms reproductive success. Hmm. Right, that's not a disorder in any meaningful sense, right? There's no impairment in what we call fecundity, aka how many grandchildren you will have who are fertile. Mm-hmm. And the 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 book that's the most helpful for this is something called The Selfish Gene uh, by uh, now raconteur about religion, uh, <laughs> uh, who, who wrote it. Um, and I'm going to blank on the name. Um, I want to say Christopher Hitchens because he's funnier, but he's not. It's a scientist. I'll get there. Um, what was the book called again? Uh, the Selfish Gene. Oh, uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, yeah. So Dawkins is a geneticist who went went to bat against religion. But The Selfish Gene is one of the most brilliant books I've ever seen. And and his, his concept was that like each gene advocates for itself. Genes that work well together will perpetuate together. Anything that's common is going to be common in the population. And one of the failures we had in imagining how genetics would work 
is thinking there were going to be large effect size genes for anything that's common. Mm. And there aren't, because if it's bad, it would get weeded out. I was actually just listening to, I was just listening to um, um, a podcast with Peter T. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him and uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, I believe his name is, was an oncologist. And, yep. um, and, and he was, they were talking about how the jump from, um, how the, the jump from understanding uh, when, the, when we discovered germ theory or like in around that time, how that sort of like revolutionized the next like up until now what we understand about medicine or a lot of what we understand about medicine and infectious disease and how we thought that we would make a similar massive jump when we sequenced the human genome and how it just didn't really happen yep. um, in the same way. Like we thought it was going to be this like huge cavernous door opening up in this deluge of... Uh, uh, of of a leap forward and then it didn't really happen i think it speaks to what you were just saying that we thought that there was this this thing in genetics that it, like you could just go like oh there's this like gigantic gene that does that does this that causes cancer and we can just alter that one thing and in reality it's like thousands or however many mm. well i i think there was a, the the difference is we're talking about weak link versus strong link problems so i'll answer your adhd question directly how do I deal with it? By recognizing it's a thing and getting support from people in my life and living a life that is consistent with having that problem. Mm. Uh, it's not the only problem I have. Um, what, what, does like, that, what does that look like for you, though? Because like, I'm, I'm looking for some like really good, tangible, concrete. practical so, examples. <laughs> so I write about this all the time. I have a newsletter called The Frontier Psychiatrist. Uh, it's a substack, so The Frontier Psychiatrist, plural, substack.com. It's also got a podcast, uh, and I write about ADHD and how to live with it. So some of the things I say are things like, uh, it turns out attention is an important and fundamental process. And if you have ADHD, it means you have a difference in how your attention is allocated. Mm -hmm. So you're better able to hyper-focus on things that are very interesting. You're less able to focus on things that are boring. And that's adaptive in some contexts, but damaging in others. Mm -hmm. And it can be very frustrating at a lot of times if people expect you to do stuff that you can't. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you expect you to do stuff that you can't, or at least not well, then you're not going to. So a really simple example, I've got to do my taxes. Am mm -hmm. I going to do them on my own? No, I will avoid doing something boring endlessly. If I want to do something boring, I need to sit down next to another human who's going to force me to do it. Mm -hmm. right? And that's an example of like, say, go do this boring thing to someone with ADHD. Your brain will sabotage that all day long. Mm -hmm. I, I was... If that's that's a, that's a simple version of mm -hmm. it. I, I was uh, reading Johan Hari's uh, new book, Stolen Focus, and he's talking a lot about, not specifically about ADHD, but about uh, how there's an attention crisis uh, that society is going through right now. Like we're just constantly being bar bombarded on social media and all these things. And he, he did this um, experiment where he uh, went away for three months and got rid of his phone and... Uh, access to the internet and everything and just totally remove screen time from his life and a lot of the uh, like the the profound sort of positive impacts that came from that were really really remarkable and and sort of i i i sort of looked at them in the same way as like if i did something that intense like got rid of my phone for three months you know it probably helped my adhd a lot because i'm very susceptible to distractions and i'm wondering how much um this like this like popularity of ADHD, or um, I guess there's like a lot more people being diagnosed with ADHD. I'm wondering how much of that is attributed to like our environmental circumstances right now, and how much of it is like 
actually just people who haven't been diagnosed with this, um, mm. you know, in the past. Yeah. Some of that's both, right? Um, so look, it's common. We know it's common because we've done large studies that tell us it's common as a disorder and disorder defined by do people meet criteria in a book that is the DSM-5. But I think if you just ask, is attention allocation different in the population and are some people differently able to pay attention than others? Yes. Right. And in a world with only short doors are tall people disordered. You betcha. They hit their head. <laughs> in a world where you've got to get up a hill, is a Lamborghini a disordered car in the winter? Uh-huh. Right. And so there are a lot of us with highly tuned ADHD engines that are in Lamborghinis essentially for the wrong task. Right. In parking a Lamborghini on the street in New York, bad plan. Someone's going to break in. You're going to hit a pothole. Wrong car, wrong situation. ADHD, wrong brain for doing anything alone. Mm. It's a great teamwork brain. Mm. Uh, and humans are a teamwork species, and we evolved in a teamwork context. Um, and so we're more sensitive to novelty. And having some of those people around means that everyone eats more. Because, mm. like, one dude going, like, extra gazelles? Is there mm -hmm. one? Mm -hmm. no, there's, a, there's a spare gazelle. And that one dude who found the extra gazelle is helpful. But not if the other people in the tribe can't go, let's figure out how to get that gazelle. Because mm. there are details involved in executing anything. And so the world that we know is the product of some people who are, you know, lunatics, right? ADHD, mania, narcissism. Without those things, nobody would do anything interesting ever. We'd all be accountants and the world would suck. You need some people to do stuff that is, by definition, grandiose and a terrible idea to find out that, that it's not. And you need other people who are really great at organizing stuff so those people don't crash every plane. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of like how like my childhood, um, I I did well in school. Like I, it was easy for me. And, and until I got to university, then that was a totally different situation. You hit the wall. Totally. And like like in a big way, in a, yeah. in a way that I could have never anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, but I think of like the education system and the, learning environment for um, young adolescent kids and how it's really not um, very accommodating of things like ADHD among, among other um, childhood sort of uh, disorders. I'm curious from the work that you did, like uh, the work that you've done, what are like, how is society not supporting uh, children and why are so many people growing up to live with traumatic mental illnesses. Yeah. So uh, we hate children. Big statement. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, the thought that children are protected is a lie. 
children are routinely, uh, all the time, uh, abused, harmed, trafficked, terrible things are done to children all the time. Um, some people don't do that. Most people don't do that, but enough people will harm children uh, that we cannot lose track of the fact that there are pernicious actors in the world who want to do bad things to children and hurt them. And we do not meaningfully protect them. We prefer the kabuki theater version of protecting children, which is not the same thing as preparing children to be resilient in the world. And so we do things like create schools which are super boring. And it's not a great idea to learn in an environment that's super boring because that tell it teaches two lessons at once. It teaches children that they fail and they suck if they're not good at paying attention to sitting still. And it teaches them that what we're teaching them isn't important. And we cue that for them socially by presenting it in a way that's boring. And humans don't learn based on things being boring. We learn on things being important and relevant to us. Mm. So if you compare the lesson you're taught, never, ever cross the street without looking both ways from your mom, right? That's important. Learn that shit right now. Don't go with the bad man in the free candy van. Terrible idea because your mom said it. And in a second, the tone of her voice and the trust you have in that relationship lets you know, no, don't do that thing. We don't do all sorts of dangerous shit on average all the time that's very complicated because someone told us and mean it. And then we take very important lessons about math, science, etc., and we teach them in a way that's so fucking boring, it makes Ooh. it clear that nobody should ever bother to learn any of it because it's not relevant even to the teacher who's teaching you. Yeah. And no one's going to learn that lesson unless they're, you know, slightly a weirdo or find their own personal reasons or the teacher's enough of off to really actually care. And so we're teaching important information in ways that feel and are communicated as un unimportant and not relevant to the experience of kids. Mm -hmm. That's that's super interesting to me because um, I feel like throughout my childhood, I lost interest in learning um, and I only refound it, uh, re like rediscovered it in my probably mid 20s. And now there's things like I can't I can't part of the reason I can't turn off at night is like I'm on YouTube watching interesting videos about interesting things that I wish I was interested in earlier in my life. Like I could watch a computer programming tutorial for eight hours straight and totally get lost in it until four in the morning. Yet, you know, if somebody told me to go and learn it in school, it would be like the most boring thing mm -hmm. ever that I have no interest in, in doing like what, it, what is the, what is a solution? I mean, like, I feel like yeah. the solution is so far from what is the current. Um, yeah. Process. Um, like, what and, is it? <laughs> and, and and so what you're what you're highlighting, and this will get to my work at Fermata, is um, it seems like the real solutions, the actual solutions, if we were honest with ourselves, are so different from the current systems. And why mm. is that the case? Mm -hmm. And what does that tell us about what we could or should do? So I will start with some facts. Depression or whatever that is, can be over in five days. Over. In most people, and by most I mean 65 to 79% of individuals who have 20 years on average of depression and 13 failed medication trials on average. You can want to kill yourself on Sunday and not be depressed at all on Friday more often than not with no drugs. 
That sounds, yep. yeah. You got to, yep. Go right into that. <laughs> yeah. Go right into that. Cause that's, you know, that, that is like, it's a, sh- <laughs> it, like it, it, as, as P as three people who, who have sat around and had like so many conversations with people who have dealt with depression for so long and, you know, attempted suicide, thought about suicide. Like it's, that is such a wild statement to hear. And I'm not saying, and, and, and I, and I don't mean this to sound like, oh, like, like, Oh, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. I'm going. So, I'm, I'm going to tell you some more things. I'm going. Man, I just want to know. Tell us how. Like, tell. I just like, want to know. That's your, amazing. But I'm going to give you some more information, and I want to hear your emotional reaction to the information yeah. piece. My by piece. my reaction is you're full of shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, okay, all right. That is us. that is what it's like. I don't I don't think you are, but that's definitely what it yeah. sounds like. Yeah. 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 So I'm fascinated to to right. hear. And so uh, that and that's important, right? Because you just highlighted the role of trust. Because you heard something that doesn't sound believable and you didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is adaptive. You should not believe things that your brain tells you are bullshit on average. So we'd have to establish trust to believe anything. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of what we've done as health professionals is ignore trust, that thing that lets us learn anything new, mm-hmm. as a crucial and vital factor in anything we communicate. Well, um, mm-hmm. So we ignored trust. That's one reason. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I described is FDA cleared already. So its major hurdle is out of the way. Well, what is it? Like it, it, it just sounds. Guess how many patients have got special underwear. <laughs> Guess how many patients have been published to have had this non-medication interventional treatment in one form or another? By me, by the way. Published? Yeah, published. Yeah, published data on patients getting brain stimulation, which is what this is. Obviously, published. a statistical relevant amount, which is how many people? Like over 300 people? Something I have no like idea. <laughs> okay, so the largest study in depression of all time is STAR-D, uh, Stikun's Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression, and that was 2,700 patients roughly total. How many do you think we've published on? Is this a Price is Right F- thing? 550. Five, 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 549. 3,000. So, so, <laughs> right. so, so statistics matter, right? And the reason some studies are big is because you're trying to prove that when you look at two different things that have a small difference, that there is a real difference. Mm-hmm. And the smaller the difference, the more people you need to put in a study to see that there's a real difference statistically between intervention A and intervention B which is usually a sham. So in the FDA approval trial, we had 35 people for that study. However, in the real world, we've given 1,300 people mm-hmm. that treatment and published that data um, last week. Not all of it has been done in that accelerated fashion, so it's all mm-hmm. in five days, but it turns out hundreds of patients and have how, 600 at this point. And how is that, like, how, how is that, uh, how are those patients followed? Like, what's the, like, what's the structure of that in terms of, like, intervention and follow-up and all that stuff? Right. Like, so, uh, so I'll I'll describe the the course of affairs. Um, so the work that I do at, at Fermata is doing this treatment for folks and figuring out how to get it to more people more cheaply. Um, so it's a brain magnet. So we have an electromagnet which which pulses. It's been around since the 1980s. It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. The mechanism is just the same as flashcards, right? If you show someone a flashcard once a day, they'll learn something. If you show them the next day, they'll learn a little bit more. If you show them 10 times a day, separated by about 15 minutes each, they'll learn it faster, right? You don't look at flashcards once a day, you look at them 
once an hour. Mm-hmm. And it turns out when you do the once an hour thing, you learn it better. And so what I do is the learn it better version. Um, a reflex hammer where you hit your knee and you get a reflex, right? The leg moves because you hit the knee because you triggered a nerve thing. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing in the brain. So we're teaching something by directly stimulating a circuit in the brain. And when you do that, someone can learn the lesson that that circuit should fire more. And if you space it out by 50 minutes, you get an effect called uh, metaplasticity enhancement. So the brain's ability to change plasticity is enhanced by the spacing. So we do treatment, space, treatment, which is more potent than treatment, treatment, space, nothing, right? Or treatment, day, treatment, right? And... Uh, of course it is. So the reason all drugs work the same as placebo, more or less, is because the rate-limiting factor is hope, right? Human experience is potent. Mm-hmm. If I were to tell you there's a drug that's better than the best day of your life, you would justly not believe me, and you shouldn't. Because the experience of having love, of having ca- being cared for, or being saved, of any of these things, um, is remarkable and powerful, and we evolved in this world to have those experiences and have them change us. So thinking we can do better than that's hard. Any oral medication that we give for depression causes a steady state change in neurotransmitters, and there will be counter-regulatory changes to nullify that effect functionally. Mm-hmm. And so for most people, they don't really do anything more than getting hopeful and letting change take its way. And that change, that hope is powerful, and we should never underestimate it. Is it, is it similar to, like, is what you're describing similar to this, the reason why psychedelics have proven yes. to be effective? Yes. It's creating a new experience. It's rewiring your brain. This is more like the the approach to doing, like taking yes. that, synthesizing that experience into a treatment and doing it repetitively. Yes. But what is, what is like, what is actually happening in transcranial magnetic stimulation? Like what is, yes. I, I mean, I'm I like when you, when you explained it first, I was just, I was picturing, I was picturing Arnold in the scene in Total Recall when they're like, he's going, he's, he's going to like take the vacation to Mars you know, this like big fucking thing that goes like chug, 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 and around his head. And then he just like, you know, you hear the humming of the machine. Like what is what's actually actually physically happening? It's exactly on the outside that. and the inside. It's exactly that. <laughs> Amazing. Sweet. <laughs> Sign me the fuck up. I'm going to so, Mars tomorrow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's some evolution in how these things are developed. So in the 1980s, Ted, Ted Barker, who's a scientist in the UK, figured out that you could take a magnetic coil and point it at someone's head and get it to fire and get that to make nerves fire, right? So just like you can hit a reflex hammer on someone's knee, you could hit a pulse of magnetic energy at someone's head, and that actually, that changing magnetic field induces current in a wire. The wire is the neuron in your brain, right? So thumb in the direction of the wire, fingers curl in the direction of changing magnetic field, current induced in the wire, Faraday's rule, one of them from physics. Same thing. And so we're inducing firing in a wire. Those wires are our neurons. It turns out the cheat code in the brain is that everything is a rhythm. And the fact that we have these rhythms synchronizing with other rhythms is the way we are so efficient. And so in our brain, when we stick someone in a brain scanner, we're able to see a very gross approximation of what's firing in sync with what by looking at changes in bold signal. And what that means is essentially we're looking at how fast oxygen is pulled off of hemoglobin and changing the spin of protons, blah, blah, blah. But essentially, it's a way of looking at how metabolically active brain is and at what time and what's the relationship between one part of the brain and another. Mm. So That is a gross measurement, but I'm, we'll get you there. It's important to stay mm. with this bit. Mm-hmm. So you can put someone in a brain scanner and see their brain doing stuff by seeing how much mm. oxygen is being pulled off of hemoglobin, aka metabolic activity, in any given part of the brain. 
You can look at two parts of the brain doing that at once. You can look at any part of the brain and all of the other parts of the brain and see what's happening and how are they synchronized or not. And it turns out that's important because the synchronization between this part of the brain firing and this part of the brain firing, right? What's that synchronization or desynchronization is the same importance as somebody in a band playing out of sync with the drummer ooh, or not, ooh, right? Ooh. So all of us are the band in our brain and each part of the brain is playing its own rhythm or note. But if they play out of time with each other, it's going to suck just as bad as the shittiest band you were ever in. Mm -hmm. And if it's good, those same instruments will be Radiohead. Right. So how right. do you how do you figure out how do you figure out in an individual, or maybe or maybe there's a similarity or it's in the same region? Like what part of the brain that you need to target? Mm. What's the, what's what what is the strength of the magnetic pulse that you are delivering? Like. How do you understand that for an individual person when you're when you want to deliver treatment? Yeah, and is it is it just the is it just the magnetic sort of stimulation, or is there some sort of like conversation happening with the person while that's while that's going on? Right, you're getting all of it. That's amazing. <laughs> um, it matters. It matters. I actually have no idea what's happening. I listen, <laughs> I, I listen to way too much Andrew Huberman, and like sometimes yeah. I just go, I just go, uh -huh. oh fuck! I uh -huh. think I understand something about the brain. <laughs> so, did you hear Nolan Williams on Huberman? Uh, no, no, I did not. So you, that go listen to that because that's okay. the dude who figured this out. Okay, cool. Cool. So actually, Nolan, you know what? They were just talking yeah. about. I was listening to him and Peter Atia this morning, and yeah. uh, and they were they were talking about him. Yeah. So Nolan's a bud, and five years ago, we got set up on a brunch date at a conference by uh, his mentor and mine. <laughs> and we had brunch, and we figured out we were doing the same thing. He was doing brain stimulation using this approach where they took an fMRI, and they took one of these older magnets that had a very focal area of target, and he was doing that to get it to the right spot. So you stick someone in a brain scanner, and you look at the relationship between how the brain is firing in an MRI, and that's how you point this very focal magnet to treat depression, and then he was doing it 10 times a day. And I had looked at the same data around doing it multiple times a day and had done that, but with a different device that used a, a coil that just had a broader area of target so I couldn't miss, so I didn't okay. need a brain scan. Right. But we realized, and this was totally bonkers, that everyone we'd given this treatment to had remitted. Like nobody in the first 50 or so patients, nobody didn't get well. Which is like an insane statistic, right? Uh -huh. Well, we didn't believe it. We had no idea what to do with it. Mm. We were texting back and forth for like a year and a half. Being like, anyone failed yet? No. <laughs> this isn't real. There's no way this is real. Nobody fails. What are you talking about? Selfishly, Eventually, I, of course, it, it, you know, some people didn't do well and we figure out why. I, I wanted to ask about, um, yeah. I have a close friend who's been on clonopin, uh, yep. clonazepam for, for, you know, 15 years, um, like way over prescribed. Um, has continuously had to increase the dose and has been going through a process to lead up to start starting a weaning protocol. And yep. like the weaning protocol is like two years long and, yep. and can be very dangerous. Yep. Does this, is this like a thing that, that this treat type of treatment couldn't work on or, or he's also dealing with CPTSD. It's caused by CPTSD. Yeah, and so C CPSD is a great yeah. example of a thing that doesn't exist, but it's helpful for people to describe as such. Mm -hmm. um, or at least we don't have a good... We don't, like, so not all things that are true are diagnoses in the DSM. Not all things that are diagnoses in the DSM are true. 
and so when we say complex PTSD, we're saying, well, we have PTSD. And by the way, Bessel van der Kolk is a friend of mine. He came up with a criteria for PTSD, and he strongly disagrees that that's the best way to categorize trauma. Uh, PTSD is an extremely rigid diagnosis designed to accurately capture people who had a bomb go off next to them once in Iraq. It's a point trauma defined disorder and doesn't do a good job of creating a construct that we can use to capture the trauma of people who have ongoing and complex trauma, which is real, but PTSD for what it's worth, like they've had horrible experiences and that probably caused significant mistrust. And that causes derangements in how we interact with our environment because we're on guard all the time about everything and particularly interpersonal things. Our trust radar is off and often we want to die and we feel anxious and worried and sad and insane because people react to us as if we're insane when really we're reacting as if the world is as awful as it's been to us. And so when we talk about the crisis of children's mental health, it's the crisis of how badly we've treated children. There's no way biology has changed so dramatically that we went in the course of several years from, you know, X number of girls suicidal to half. Like, that's not a thing. We made the world worse. That's right. what happened. <laughs> and having a worse existence for young people is going to make them reliably want to leave it. It's not a mental health crisis. It's a humans treating other humans shitty crisis and then responding to that in this super gaslighting way, mm. which like takes Jonathan, seriously. Like Jonathan Haidt talking about yeah. like, the, the, like the, the basically the era of social media in like preteen girls that has given rise to what I mean, what I'm interested to know what you think about that. Like he's he seems to be pretty he seems to be pretty bought into the idea that social media, at least at least how he talks about it is like the elephant in the room of of like teen girl suicidality what do, how do you how do you kind of feel about his thoughts there the elephant in the room is we have to be serious about the fact we don't know the answers to the problems uh we don't even know the cause of the problems and the answer is the right answer that's the one we should get to and the explanation is the explanation that turns out to be correct and some degree of empiricism in that process and accepting that we don't know is a better answer than saying well it's social media now, did social media, does that matter a lot? Yeah. But, like, children are shot literally every single day in America. Yeah. To death. It is the leading cause of death among children. The leading cause of death in pediatrics in children in America is being shot with a bullet. That's so wild. And every kid knows that. When I grew up, school shootings didn't happen all the time mm -hmm. now they happen all the time they happen all and the time to a degree where fucking children know exactly what to do just like we knew how just like we knew what to do when the school caught on fire like <clears throat> the thing that we would practice once every fucking two months mm -hmm. like they do that they do that and then they also do the same thing for when someone's about to bust into the school and shoot them. But like that, that, is, that, that to me is so that, fucking crazy. That is absolutely fascinating, especially when we're just talking, especially when we start to think about two countries that are that that are side by side, share a gigantic, probably maybe the biggest border in the world, um, Canada and the, in the United States. Obviously, you're in the U.S. That you you you. It's a, it's that very true statistic that you just stated that the leading cause of pediatric death in the United States is to be shot. That's not the case here in Canada. And, and, and so this, this 
understanding that a child has that they know, whether it's whether it's because they know it as a as a spoken fact that someone told them or they just know it because of how they get inundated with news and how they get drilled at school to have, you know, to to understand what to do. Like you said, Jeremy, when a shooter comes into the room, like how how because obviously then the like the population of children in the United States and the population of in Canada are going to be different, right? Because they're not exposed to the same understanding. They're exposed uh, to the same news, though. They are exposed to the same news, and they are exposed to social media. So obviously, this is multifactorial. But like, yeah, I mean, like, how, how do we how do we start to think about yeah. different populations of children who are un, who are just operating in very two very different environments? So I have, by the way, till twelve fifteen because then I have my team meeting because I'm on the team at Acacia Clinics, which did the research study that got that FDA approval. By the way, got it. Um, got it. And we're all friends. <laughs> we are the many of us. And we will try to get um, the thousand questions that we have out in the, day, so in the next I'll answer minutes. this, then we can do lightning round, and then we can yeah. do another one if you yeah. want. Yeah. And, but, but really, like, so what I'm saying is, like, we got to be serious about what the actual problems are, question mark, and have some humility about it, and only accept actual solutions. So if you ask me, what do you do in America about school shootings? It's not take the guns away. I wish it was, but this is America, and no one's going to let us do that. Very true. And so I don't even want to have, I mean, like, is that a thing that Canada can pull off? Yes. Can we pull it off in America? No. But you know who doesn't shoot people to death? People who feel loved. Mm-hmm. People who are loved. Mm-hmm. People who understand they are loved and cared for and feel understood. And if we realize there's a crisis of self-direction, empathy, connectedness, intimacy, and support, and we were to actually have answers that meaningfully address those problems, you wouldn't go and shoot somebody. You'd get help if help was helpful. And since we present help that isn't helpful, kids don't want it and they're not wrong. Right? So if what you want is people not to shoot each other, be kind to them and build systems of kindness and understanding that are not brutal and punitive. Mm-hmm. And you bake that into everything. You bake in curiosity, humility, and not putting up with bullshit and bullying and torture and nastiness. And when people are, you offer redemption and healing and, and, and resolution. Like you build a culture of understanding. And then you'll have less people handy who want to pick up a gun and shoot you to death. And for those people who are suffering and who are distressed, you need to recognize the actual reasons they're distressed and actually address them in a way that works. Because the problem is we do things that don't work and pretend they should. And people feel crazy when they don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not the person to to talk to about this, and and I, I do apologize. I do apologize for. for Am I enough for a rabble rouser? No, for, <laughs> I represent. I, I apologize for referencing Peter Atia ten thousand times on every show that we do. But um, apologize he, to he, us. He laid. Yeah, apologize yeah, yeah. to you guys. That we're the ones. That he uh, he he laid out. And I'm reading his book right now, and he laid out. He he laid out the difference uh, between strategy and tactics, which I had never yeah. really considered before. And strategy being like, what do we need to do, and tactics being, how are we going to do it. Yeah. And so you're giving a very good strategy. And mm-hmm. so in terms of tactics, which is like, yep. hoof, man, I don't even know where to start with how to accomplish the things that you're talking about because I Luckily I, I have some sense because people have done it. Right. So like so so if 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 that's in your wheelhouse, what is the how do, yeah. yeah, how do we get that? So I mean he's not wrong about so psychiatrists are all tactics on average. And business people are all strategy. And strategy lasts as long as it takes to get into contact with whatever the problem is. 
And like when you're trained to manage crises in, in the psyche are you're very comfortable with tactics, right? So spreadsheets and plans and all that are a great way to prepare and manage your anxiety about not being able to handle crises. But managing a lot of crises is a great way to, to feel like, yeah, the strategy probably doesn't matter that much as long as we get have some sense of how to do what we're doing. Um, and that means you need to do a lot of failing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Be prepared to fail a lot, um, which I have luckily done. So what do you do to create those systems? Well, you look at places that have done it. And and the things I'm talking about come from the Enterfreud Center in the UK, which has a $12 million annual budget and is a not-for-profit charity that developed a psychotherapeutic approach and an approach for teams and systems in which I am a supervisor called Mentalization-Based Treatment for the Therapy mm. and Ambit Adaptive Mentalization-Based Integrative Treatment for the Teams and Systems Approach. And they've scaled that across 400 programs in the UK. They scaled it across Europe and Australia, and it has not yet made it robustly to the shores of America. But is it doable? Yes. Could you do it? Yes. Do people, you know, I don't know. I just tried to go sell a book on it and no one wanted to buy it. It's like, but who's the audience for this? Ooh. Everybody was not an acceptable answer. <laughs> so now I have to rewrite thousands of versions of mentalizing for parents. And that just means like being curious to be able to talk to your kid in a way that doesn't sound like lies. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but like accepting that trust matters and that like we shouldn't trust people who are liars. <laughs> it shouldn't be a hard sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being at ending a sentence with a question mark as a culture. Um, so what's wrong with you? Exclamation point. No. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you? Question mark. Better. Uh, how you doing? Question mark. Okay, no, I... Really? Do you want to know? Yeah, no, I really want to know. And then and not responding with, well, you're, you're, let's just fix your anxiety with anxiety pills. Um, are they going to help me over the long term? No, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, et cetera. Like Ooh. there is fundamental underlying biology that plays a role here and psychology is biology at the end of the day. Um, but there are truths about the human experience. People want things that they want, and social media capitalized on that endlessly, right? Mm. Endless dopamine hits. Yeah, I, and I, I mean, all sorts of chaos. Yeah, the, the, this uh, this entire conversation, like you know, especially surrounding the idea, and I know this is big, like at Fermata, but like the idea of stopping help that has not been helpful has been super fascinating. And uh, we want to we want to be respectful of your time. I know that you have a heart out here, so. Um, I, I mean, I would love to get you back on in the future, even like we, we barely even touched on the mentalization based treatment, which I think is like, Sorry. I mean, that's an entire that's episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And I would love to kind of dive into it. Um, but before we do wrap, do you want to just let people know, like, how can they, how can they find work that you've done? I know you mentioned the book earlier that, um, that you very likely will be <laughs> rewriting a thousand times over, but, uh, uh, adolescent suicide and self-injury mentalizing theory and treatment, um, uh, the, the clinic is Fermata, but how can, is there a place that you kind of direct people to go to kind of keep up with you and the work yeah, that you do? Yeah. Um, I mean, the easiest one is my newsletter. Um, so I write the frontier psychiatrist.substack.com. Uh, actually I think it's that, yeah, that, that's the right address. Frontier psychiatrist, plural. Uh, yes, the Avalanche's song, um, dot, dot substack.com. And I write a newsletter, which is like health tech parody. Um, so it's actually three newsletters. It's The Frontier Psychiatrist, uh, The Wizard of Odds, ODDS, which is a parody novel in serial form of The Wizard of Oz, but about healthcare. And I'm doing a very bizarre parody project called uh, The Palantir of Discovery, which is a humorous examination uh, through a legal lens of the aftermath of the litigation brought after the fall of Sauron. 
Um, and so it's endless discovery. <laughs> As, you do. So, As so one does, you know. I really like compliance, um, and 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 I hate uh, I hate nonsense. And so my my kind of my overarching kind of theme as it relates to AI is that uh, there's a generative compliance revolution that's going to happen. And so much of the world has been built around like building unimaginable complexity to to get people to just give up. Uh, and it's really good at getting ADHD people to not do stuff, right? And the whole world is shaped by this stuff. Like mm-hmm. video games are awesome because they're built for people who are novelty sensitive and we will play them all day. And mm-hmm. insurance is complicated, so we give up. Um, and, and so the Palantir of Discovery is like literally the discovery of the documentation after the fact that is the basis of legal actions between Sauron and Saruman, Ed Gandalf and the Balrog, the mm-hmm. people on the mountainside where the Balrog fell and broke it for damages to Gandalf the Grey for throwing down the Balrog and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. The, the safety standards on the bridge of Khazad-dûm were absent and there are compliance issues here that we have to face. What did Sauron know and when did he know it? This half-orc program at Isengard has been completely out of compliance and there are just serious questions General Counsel has about why the entire One Ring search project has been so badly mismanaged. <laughs> oh my god, that is, it's, a, it's, it's, it's like, it's kind of oh, a um, night at the, uh, night at the, t- no, wait, wait, what was the podcast called? Oh, uh, um, Magic, Magic, yeah, something, yeah, magic, yeah, magic something at the Magic Tavern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that quick, so, I like humor and I write stuff in a way that's funny, but I say things, some things that are sincere and true and yeah. my stuff will be there and cool. it's on Substack and I tweet about stuff at, at Scott Muir MD on Twitter and I crush it on LinkedIn with an engagement rate of this is true 10%. LinkedIn is helpful. I, LinkedIn I, is helpful. I'm really, a good uh, LinkedIn engagement rate is 2%. <laughs> uh, and I wrote really, articles about how I did it. I'm I'm really curious. Um, I didn't really get a direct answer about uh, clonazepam. Yeah, and, clonazepam uh, sucks. It takes forever to get off of. A phenobarb taper is the right answer to get off of it abruptly. You'll get off in five days instead of years. And then you need to treat the underlying problem. Um, the problem is there is with, uh, so uh, benzodiazepine medications are GABA receptor ag- agonists, right? The GABA receptor is a uh, ligand-gated calcium channel, which causes hypopolarization of cells. GABA is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. And so flooding your brain with a GABA agonist means you're constantly like not firing neurons, which makes it harder for TMS to work, which doesn't mean it won't work. But it does mean that that person needs to get off of clonopin, and you can either do that by tapering it for fucking ever or you can do it by getting someone uh, through five days of phenobarbital taper and then off. And then you're going to need to treat the underlying state that got them there in the first place. But that post-acute withdrawal will suck in some some way. And that's why you're doing such a long taper. Treating the underlying par- problem is part of the issue. And they absolutely should do that because that is a brutal regimen to be on. There is a way of doing TMS, which is inhibitory and actually like anti-seizure. And so it may be that the most effective approach is to find out why they were so anxious in the first place. And shocker, it's probably not anxiety. They probably have OCD. They probably worried on a loop that was misdiagnosed as anxiety. They tried to treat obsession and worry, which is basically an emotional autoimmune disease, right? You're worried about things you shouldn't be worried about, like your immune system attacks things it shouldn't attack. And treating the OCD that the person most likely has and not anxiety with focused brain stimulation of the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, not the left dorsal uh, prefrontal cortex, is the thing that will be the most helpful to them problem answered next. <laughs> Thank you. Owen, that was awesome. uh, I, I hope we can convince you to to uh, come shoot the shit with us again again uh, sometime again in the future. Yeah, uh, this and you should get been... Chelsea to do it because she actually can answer this stuff better than I can. Uh, I mean, either one of you. You're, you're both great. This has been She's great. She's less distractible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, very, Thanks, very man. fun. Thank you so much. We really Thank appreciate you. this. Uh, I'll give you a takeaway. Depression can be over and don't put up with lies. 
That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Simple. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.